Hello and welcome. I'm Regina, your host and mindset coach. This is the Moms Who Achieve podcast, where we discuss motherhood, mindset, money, and everything in between to equip first-generation changemakers with the tools they need to create the lives they want and deserve by managing their minds and taking massive action. I am super ecstatic that you're here, and I'm hopeful that with an open mind, you'll leave with exactly what you came for. Let's go. Hey everybody, I am back with another Healing Hour conversation with a friend of mine that I met online. Her name is Jahida. Um, We actually, didn't we meet in the healthcare collective? Um, So we're both in healthcare and we signed up for a coaching program with Tavana and I met her there and I just remember hearing her talk about her business. We connected on Instagram and everything fell in place after that. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm going to just let you introduce who you are. Definitely let us know um, how many children you have and what information you want us to know from there. And we'll get this conversation going. Okay. Thank you. So my name is Jahida LaRoche. I am CEO and founder of the Healthy and Happy Woman Company. I'm also a physician assistant um, and a healthcare practitioner in terms of public health. Um, I'm a mom. I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, I'm a mom of three, um, 15, five, and two, almost three, next two weeks. Um, girls, all girls. <laughs> Did you say all girls? All girls. Woo. Okay. When you said that you were, okay, I know you're a physician assistant, but then you said a healthcare practitioner. Can you tell us the difference between the two? So there's not really a difference. I, I really meant public health practitioner, which is which is something that's different because a physician assistant is a healthcare practitioner. Um, the spectrum of healthcare practitioners are physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners. I put nurses in there because you do provide care. Um, so when we think of a healthcare practitioner, those are like, that's the group. Of, of of people, of names, of designations that we look at. A public health practitioner is somebody who's a little bit different, who's not clinical, but uses different um, philosophies and theories to help manage the public's health. So around, if we think about COVID, you know, that's still a big thing. That's a public health issue because the entire public, mm. it's a pandemic. Everybody suffers or can suffer. There's risks to it. There's epidemiology, which is a part of uh, public health where we track the disease. So if we think about how COVID progressed, that's like a big public health case study. Um, how do we keep the public safe? How do we keep them healthy? And so that's, that's I, I also have a degree in that. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. Not epidemiology per se. I mean, public health is vast. Um, it's also part of like the healthcare framework. So you have different subsets of that. But yeah, I have a yeah. background in public health. And I like to point out because a lot of my listeners may or may not be in healthcare. I know a lot of them are not actually. Um, and when I'm talking to people about <clears throat> should I be a nurse? Should I join healthcare? I love in general, what I do love about healthcare itself is that you can be in healthcare and like practice directly with people on people. And then if you're not a people person, but you still want to give in a way, like what you're speaking of, like the research on the back end, like I know nurses and public health, you know, 
clinicians maybe would be the term mm -hmm. or, um, that don't ever see patients, but still like play a major part in healthcare. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we think of what pu public health really fuels, it's policy. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of research that happens. So it helps the scientific community in terms of us practitioners who do bedside care. I mean, I don't do bedside care anymore, but it also helps frame policy because your legislators look to see what the research says. Has any research been done in smoking in children, for example? Mm -hmm. What does that show? Is it a danger? Do we see outcomes that are or bad for our children? And if the answer is yes, then those are the studies that get funded by the government to come do more work. And those are the studies that legislators either use or don't use to prove their case, to pass laws. So that's another arm of public health. So it's, it's, it's very, you know, you, if you're into service, healthcare is service-based. Yeah. And it's a big industry. It's not just direct patient care, which is, of course, the the bedrock of what healthcare is. But we have all of these other arms of healthcare that support the work that you do at the bedside, the work that I did at the bedside, um, in terms of how we the guidelines that we use. You know, if a patient presents with X, what are the guidelines that we we use? You know, that's all fueled by research studies, longitudinal ones, long-standing ones, um, to just see how, how patients do, you know, what the outcomes are. So if you're looking for patient outcome work or to be of service to impact patient care, you can do it from anywhere, from the bedside to the back end. You know, they all they all funnel back to the patient. Yes. And I find that in, in acute care, which is where all of my um, health care experience, for the most part, I guess I have worked in like nursing homes and such. When I was a CNA, um, I've worked in clinics, but for the most part, it's been inpatient hospital acute care. Um, the floor and what the the care that we provide, like it was it would be made or broke by the research, like our research team, our education team on the floor. So um, I've kind of just I've kind of got my own thoughts around that inpatient wise. But for you, do you find that there are black or brown people like heading that, like doing the research on the back end? And, and does that affect the results we get in how we create policy? So that's really interesting. It's not enough of us. So whatever you see on the inpatient side is mirrored in, let's say, the ambulatory side or just in the public health research space. Um, there's just not enough of us. Mm. Um, there's not enough of us that are being tenured into professions that, you know, the PhDs that are getting the yeah. tenureship. And then there's not enough of us who are able to reach us because you have to have the support of your organization. And it is it is challenging. So yeah. whatever you see on the inpatient side, whatever, you know, you feel is... Um, you know, bubbling up, it's also bubbling up on the, because I came from the inpatient side. I was critical care. Okay. Um, so yeah. Focus yeah. So a hundred percent, definitely not enough black and brown folks on the inpatient. I just was like, what, is that the same on the outside? So yeah, it, um, it most definitely is. I mean, where you see a lot more representation is in the communities that are predominantly black and brown. Unfortunately, they also are like, the high Medicaid, the underinsured, um, the uninsured. 
And so they're under-resourced. So even if you are there to try to do good work, it is still a struggle because the resources are not being funneled there. So, you know, it's, 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 it propagates outside of the hospital walls. Yeah. Yeah. And are you, were you, I know your background is not American. Were you born here though and raised? I was, I I am American. I was born here. Um, your oh, I, let me I re, let me rephrase that. That was incorrect. Like your culture, like your yes. is, it, is it African? Yeah, yeah you it? have an I have an accent. Yeah, so yes. I was born here, and I I left um at four, around four, and I moved to Trinidad. That's Trinidad. where my mom is from, and my dad is from Jamaica. So I am a Caribbean woman. I identify as that. Um, you can hear it. I can't hide it. That's where I I'm love raised. It. Yeah, I I, I spent about 18 years there, went to school, my, my, my beginnings were there. And then I came back up and started college and started like my professional career. So yeah, I'm born, I'm born in New York. Yeah, so you are American. Your background, as far as like how you were raised is was the appropriate way to ask Mm -hmm. that was in another country. And do you find that um, what we're talking about, about uh, underrepresentation and things like that, is the same there? Because in my mind, I've never been and I've never lived there. But I know me, us Americans, when we think about it, it, we think of like mostly black and brown people there, period. So like that's the vast majority. So does it this healthcare and the way we take care of black and brown people different in those spaces? Um. <clears throat> yes. So. It's a very interesting dynamic. They're more black and brown than than not. I mean, we do have a very multicultural um country. Okay. Uh, we have um about fifty percent. It's like almost fifty fifty. Fifty of African descent, fifty percent of East Indian descent. I mean, it's not quite fifty because we do have um people from the Asian community outside of India. I'm talking mm-hmm. about they could be Chinese. I know Filipino, we have that um, Asian group and we have we have a South American influence now from Venezuela due to the political climate. Mm. And we do have um, people who have ancestry from Syria, Lebanon, um, but they're in the minority in terms of numbers. Um, But in terms of healthcare, their system is very different. So they Trinidad was a colony of of England. And so our healthcare system is a replica of what England has, which is this very universal health care. And I, I don't know okay. if you're familiar with the concept. It was a little something. bit like Canada and different places. Yeah. So very, very, you know, similar. So in that respect, we're very different in terms of how we access healthcare. Now, the challenge that they may have that we don't have is again, resources. It's it's how do we keep a system that people are not paying for one, you know, as up to date as we can to yeah. provide the services for, for, for the majority. So it, it, those are their challenges are not as 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 similar to ours. Yeah. But sometimes at, at the end of the day, if we're looking at outcomes, they may have some poor outcomes because of their system, not because of race. But because it's just a system that, yeah. Whereas ours it, in the U.S., it's very layered. Um, yeah. You know, we have the structural racism that 
we just navigate through without even knowing we're navigating it through it. And then you have that what we have to deal with from an interpersonal relationship mm-hmm. with a provider or a nurse or whoever we, we come in to, to, to provide, to have care, our care contacts with that race, that racism or the bias that might be behind that. That's what we, so we have to contend with a few more. They have to contend with some other things. So like resources, maybe, um, you know, under-resourced. It just, mm-hmm. th- there's a lot of resource issues that they may be, be having. I mean, I can't speak to it right now because I'm not there. Sure. Um, can I say it's falling apart? No. Do they do the best that they can to help people heal? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but they have their own challenges and it's it's yeah. not the same. Yeah, so it's like over there, they may have, you know, the their issues may be because of lack of the resources. In some instances, we're here, we have the resources, but because the way you look and my bias towards you, it may, you may not get yeah, those. Yeah, you can't access it. And, and, you know, maybe it's also for them, and this is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but, you know, when you think of being a colony, um, you weren't designed to be independent from from the host country. Mm-hmm. And so once they gained their independence, things shifted in terms of how they were going to get supported. And so it's it's through this phase of transformation, I think, you know, their independence day, today's the 30th, is tomorrow. You know, they are still becoming. Yeah. And so just like the United States was a colony of England and two, how many of a year, 100 years, 200 plus years later, we're still becoming. You yeah. know, and the framework of racism was already set. So there's still some relics of that in their infrastructure that they're going to have to work to, you know, upend. But mm-hmm. they so, do the best. They do the best. Yeah. And so this is just my own curiosity. Is it? Mm-hmm. I've never lived somewhere where white people weren't the majority or didn't feel that way. So mm-hmm. over there, do white people experience? racism because they're the you know what I mean or like is it weird to see a white person like this is it uh, already know, but I need no it's not weird um I don't know if they would consider feeling like they're being there's a bias against them okay my experience um is that they're they're like almost a league of their own kind of thing they're they're sometimes the people who have business so this is where it kind of it becomes similar to here they're the ones who who have you know some of the economic power and maybe some of the political power in that they they fund you know so you know i don't know if they can say that they experience racism um i i feel like we all kind of blend Anyway, yeah. And, yeah, and so. of course, like when you talk about like the definition of racism and, and what that really means and that white people can't experience that. So that probably was the wrong word to use. But like being in a space, I couldn't imagine being in a space where they weren't the majority, where it was right. like normal to see black and brown all the time everywhere. So just speaking, to, I just thought to ask you that, like speaking. Yeah, of I mean, been over there. That's, that's, that's pretty much the life that I knew. I mean, it didn't feel... I- and I and I'm a unique individual because I toggled between that world and this world. Yeah. And so I it was all just of it what it was. Yeah, it just was normal. I mean yeah. 
yeah. and, and coming here also didn't feel abnormal because I, I, I just knew that this was the landscape. Um, yeah. So I just had a unique experience, but it didn't feel uncomfortable. It doesn't feel weird. It just is like, if you ask somebody whose life is there, they're like, Oh, this is what we know. Like we right. don't know the other. Yeah. So like you just like you don't know what it feels like to to be around and surrounded by all the shades of brown. All the you know like they they don't know the opposite. It's just um, their thing. Yeah. 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 I mm -hmm. love that. So then what decide what uh tell us about like how you decided and how you went forward with creating the um healthy and happy woman company. So it was a pandemic. I was also pregnant. Okay, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and um, we had been remote. And I mean, even before the pandemic, the idea of disparities um, was always there in the forefront. Like I've experienced some health challenges over over the years. And some of the way of, I'm, I'm, I'm a clinician, but some of the ways that I was handled Hmm. Um, by some of the providers I saw, you ha I had to question why, 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 if I presented with a chronic headache, was I given Percocet hmm. and not really listened to? Um, why wasn't I examined fully? Um, and it's interesting because I don't when I when I navigate the healthcare system as a patient, I don't, I'm not forward with I'm a physician assistant. I'm just right. navigating as a patient. And based on what's happening, then I might just have to let you know that I, I know something too. And it was just a really interesting um, experience. Another experience I had with another provider, a white male. And when you are unwell, even as a clinician, you are almost, you're at the mercy of somebody else. Yes. And it's a scary place to be in when they don't see you. Mm. so they don't see you as a human they may and listen it's not even that it's an intentional it's it's that implicit bias right so you're going to give me a medication to help a symptom that could probably affect the entire future of my life yeah and he's like yeah it'll work just take it it's temporary it'll push you into you know, menopause temporarily. I'm 20 something. Huh? And I take it. Like I go, I fill a prescription and I take the first the first dose and I was like, mm, I vomit. I don't feel good. I said, this don't it didn't sit right with me. I'm a clinician. But in that moment, I am unwell. And nobody has had a, a full conversation with me. And so when I kind of recount my experiences of like the missed opportunities, even as a clinician taking care of patients in critical care, we had a patient who came to the floor um, and stepped down, a black woman. She, I forget what surgery she had, but Regina, she didn't look right. Mm. And I'm looking at her, her the, the, the Foley and the urine is that dark dark I said mm -mm. let me go and do a proper physical on her now she is a, a brown skin woman like myself so you can't see John Day. right can you, you can't I, I don't look yellow but her eyes were all yellow hmm. so let me just run the labs because to confirm my suspicions 
And sure enough, she had some biliary issue going on. Now, my role was to manage her acute post-op, you know, state. Right. But that would have been missed because she was getting ready to be transferred to a regular bed. Yeah. So it's in those spaces when I like recount and had time to reflect what what's happening with with us. Mm. And the gap is 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 clear. Um when I started thinking about pregnancy and my my pregnancy challenges, um if I didn't have a black female provider, I'm not sure if I would have the children that I have or if I would have been alive. And we all see and hear of, of the maternal, black maternal statistics, how poor they are. Young women are just dying, you know, post-childbirth, yeah. in childbirth. You know, you have to have an astute provider who sees you. Hmm. And so obviously there's a thing that's missing one in the medical education space. And two, when we interface, when we present with the patient, what are we, are we just presenting to solve symptoms or are we trying to help the patient? And that's where I started really thinking about, but where's the gap? You know, in the ambulatory world, the gap is a communication gap. You know, providers, unfortunately, want to do the best that they can for us, but they have 15 minutes. Right. So you you can't really how much can you how much can you do? And so that's really where I started um thinking about and ideating about what what can I offer, especially women, black women, women of color, um, who have all of the statistics, not even we, we don't have a positive statistic. <laughs> you know, it's like we're overweight, we're the most likely to this, we're the most likely to that. And I'm like, okay. There has to be, there is a space for for, for the, more education. And in public health, there are healthcare educators. So, but I think it has to go a step beyond. Mm. So there's the education about lifestyle and behavioral changes, but then there's the education about what this disease is doing to you. And then there's, how can we help you? Yeah. Now, it's not a get going against what your doctor has prescribed or suggested. It's like, where can we now, you're on the medication, but what changes do you need to, to, to adopt? What is unique about your situation that we haven't considered, you know? And that's where I, you know, wanted to build in, in that space, in the bridging of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because I hear one of the things I hear you saying that you do, and we can get into that exactly what you do is mm -hmm. the personalized care that mm -hmm. just doesn't come from healthcare um, for many mm -hmm. different reasons. Color being mm -hmm. one for sure. Mm -hmm. um, like you, you talk about that, and and also the time, um, the resources, and where they allocate money to, and mm -hmm. let's just take it all the way back to the education that even myself, nurses, you know, physicians, nurses, whomever, all healthcare workers are getting and what that education really is like. Because when I speak to nurses or um, I've never been to medical school, but for sure nurses, 
we're taught very textbook, very um, things that are not even really still in practice, because what would that mean? That would mean constantly updating the books, constantly updating the curriculum um, and just how primary school like these kids are learning from curriculum that was created 60 plus 70, 80 years ago. Um, I find that that kind of shows up too in healthcare in our schools. And so we're coming to the floor, coming to the healthcare space to take care of folks with book education that may or may, or may not be updated necessarily. Um, I got no, very, maybe, maybe a class or two on cultures and what does that mean? And I see it every day. Uh, in nursing, where particularly uh, non-Black and Brown uh, women, men, or whatever, don't know how to uh, properly communicate, honor, like just, and it's not even just Black people, like there's all different kind of cultures around. So we're like, yeah. missing that piece. And it's just so much that's missing from the healthcare that I feel when I talk to my Black friends, my Brown friends, um, causes us to be like, I'm going to wait till very, very last minute before I go get seen because it just doesn't seem as though um, it's a safe space. Yeah. And when you talk about your experience as in the hands of healthcare, it is very interesting. I have four, I've had four children, so I know what that's like. And I've had like uh, uncertain things happen in all of those births that I can tie down to not being listened to, being rushed, um, things not taken into consideration, like all of those things. And when you, I can definitely feel you when you say, yeah, I'm a clinician, but you're unwell and it just changes the trajectory. Like even when my kids, like something has happened to my kids over time, like I just like, I don't know what to do. Like when you're in the overwhelm of you or your family, I don't care how much you know, it's like now you like you're, your your well-being is really in the hands of someone else because one, you probably can't even really think straight. And yeah. then, you know, I want you to speak to before we get into like what exactly you do, what did you experience when they knew you were in, in healthcare in some kind of capacity, like the before and the after? So I'll give you the emergency room story. So it was a resident actually, uh um, maybe he was third year. Um so I went in because I was just having headaches. And the reason I went to the emergency room, which I'm not necessarily keen on doing, is because there was an outbreak of meningitis in my community. Uh. And so I was like, it's, it's far-fetched, but let me still go. And so once he started like rushing through the, the, the encounter and saying, okay, I'll just give you some quick I said, excuse me, mm. I still have to work. I work a night shift. How am I supposed to work with Percocet? And he goes, are you a nurse? So th that's number one. I think a lot of times in my experience, nurse gets floated around because I'm black. Yep. I'm female. Um, yeah. I can't be anything else. Um, I have to be a nurse. I said, no, I'm not. I said, but what is your plan for me? You know, and so he, he's like, well, let me get the attending. I said, well, do that. Because you have to get the attending anyway. You have to present to the attending. You don't sign off on me. You don't right. discharge me. And the attending did more. He actually touched me. He examined my eyes, but it didn't change the plan. Hmm. And so it was interesting, but I'm also still not well. So I can't go. I'm not, I'm not in the space to go back and forth. I was already annoyed 
with the encounter. I just needed to leave because I knew that you couldn't resolve my issue. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was, that was pretty much it. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I've seen it in my experience and like, I'm like you, I don't talk about me being in the healthcare space at all. Um, but when it comes up and it has, especially in particular with my kids, or even when I'm in the hospital having my children, um, it's come up and I see it too, as a nurse, I see when you're getting report, Oh, their, their mom is, you know, a doctor there, you know, it's like this un, un, untalked about thing where if someone's in med in the medical field, we need to be better. We need to do better. We need yeah. to be on our P's and Q's, yeah. um, which shouldn't be that way, but that is no. the reality. Um, yeah. Even, you know, things that were allowed that were, Oh, I was told you were an ICU nurse. Like when I had my last child and a lot of complications happened and I saw how people showed up. Whereas if they didn't know that, I'm not sure they would have, I'm not That's sure right. they would have like taken the extra step or like explained something or made it make sense before they brought it to me. Cause they were maybe, right. well, maybe she won't, you know, I need to make sure I know all these things. So I think a lot of it is normal human nature of like feeling like, I want to make sure I do right because they might know more than me, or they might know that I'm not doing this appropriately. Exactly. Um, but the other part of it is this energy that I've always felt like people, even, even, even not pertaining to healthcare, if a family comes in or a patient comes in and you see their family and how they may be treated, dependent upon how ignorant the family could be, or do they look like they have money? Do they not? Like I see all of that happening. And that is definitely about color, but also not. It's also like in general economic status and how do they carry themselves, you know? So that's why I wanted to know. Um, yeah. I, there. you know, looking from reverse as now a physician assistant, I've had situations where we've had a patient on the floor who had a cabbage, <clears throat> came up to step down and he is an immigrant. He, he was immigrant, he was overweight. And, and I'm going to give you the strangeness about this story. It wasn't just whites. It was also people of color, people from, um, different cultures saying, oh, he's lazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Regina, he wasn't lazy. He had a cardiac tamponade. So he had a huge pericardial effusion and it just went downhill that night. My point is we miss, we all do it. Yeah. So yes, predominantly it happens to us by, you know, our white counterparts, but we also. Yes. Because of that training, the training isn't going to be, you know, you, you we got the same training that they got. So mm. there's some other narrative running in our mind about a person when, when we look at that, when, yeah. whether they're black immigrant, you know, we, we, we walk into the room with a bias and you have to have the intention and be deliberate to be like, listen, let me, let me listen. Let me take a moment. And not, I'm not suggesting that I, I haven't done it, but I'm saying we all have to recognize that it, we also can do it. We black and brown can do it to black and brown. Yes. And it may not be because they're black and brown, but as you said, it might be because they have a different socioeconomic status or you perceive them to have one that is lower than yours, or they may be on drugs. Cause I remember we had, as a student, we had a, a patient who, who Mr. Matt, <laughs> who was a drug user and he ended up with, a huge abscess that it was a whole thing. And yes. you're tempted not to give him 
because you start the kid that he needs because you start thinking of him as less than because he's a drug user not really understanding that he probably at some point was just like us walking around normal and then a situation happened and now he, he, this is where he is yeah he or withholding yeah you're withholding medications because yeah, of or, drug or, user or, or the care that you need so you mean that withholds but you may not be tender. You may not be gentle. And I'm not suggesting that they're e the easiest patients to deal right. with. Right, yeah. But, you know, it's trying to find the space in between to give them the humanity yes. that they deserve, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yes, and that's a whole other conversation that you just, I'm going to take note of that because <laughs> um, caring for people who are, I've cared for folks who are pedophiles and who are, you know, convicted, you know, for a lot of different things. And so that bias, like that's just a whole conversation of how do you show up as a human being with feelings, detaching those, your beliefs around what they should and shouldn't get. And it's a whole thing. So yes. um, it's so much to consider in healthcare. And mm -hmm. that's why I really find it important to have you on and have this conversation because what you're providing when you talk about filling that communication gap, that gap you see and the business that you've created to help, especially uh, black and brown women talk about like, what does that mean? If someone is in healthcare now or they they're having some issues, um, they're not really, their needs are not being met. They're confused. They don't know what to do. Where do you come in uh, for these patients? Okay. So I have a client who was told by a provider, do you're pre-diabetic? She's like, okay. Um, so you could you need to lose weight, you need to exercise more. Okay. Come back and see me in three months. Now, mm -hmm. what is she what does that mean to her? She doesn't know how. Like it it doesn't see it's not as intuitive as you think it, you know, as people might think it is. And so that's where I come in. Firstly, you don't even know what prediabetes means. Mm -hmm. You know it's before diabetes, but what does that mean? Yeah. So it's trying to, to fill that educational gap. What does it mean? What is what it's something that you can't feel yet, but doesn't mean things are not happening. So I kind of try to get to the science of it, not overcomplicating it, making it really easy for for them to digest so we move out that space so what does it mean for that individual in her season of life because we we're not in the same seasons yeah to eat differently to exercise to sleep better like we have to look at all of the things that contribute to the thing that he told you to do which is lose weight mm. so if weight gain is a factor or being overweight or obese then we have to peel back the layers and you got to understand what that means also, because we don't really understand that. So that's where I come in. I come in to kind of fill all of those spaces and give you the information for, for, for you to now settle with it yeah. and then can start making change because the change part. So we all can lose weight. Like we, we know how to do that. We don't eat, we, you know, you calorie deficient, you will lose weight, but can you sustain it? And what is a healthy weight range for you? It's like having those conversations. Mm -hmm. If you lose weight, yes, things will improve in your lives. Can you keep it off? And that's where 
another set of education comes in because it's it's not just what you eat. It's all of, it's your life. It's your yeah. lifestyle. And we talk about lifestyle modifications in public health. And we talk about it in healthcare, but I'm bringing it very, very granular and, and specific to that person. Because if you tell me, well, I, I work the night shift. What that looks like for the person who's able to sleep at night is very yeah. different for that person. So we have to figure out what will work for you. And that's that's pretty much my process. It's it's a lot of educating. It's a lot of understanding what your patterns are and then finding the opportunities to interrupt habits that no longer serve you and the goal that you're trying to achieve. And so for that client, it took about 18 months mm -hmm. for her to get her hemoglobin A1C, which is that marker that is used to determine where you are in the spectrum of diabetes, normal or pre-diabetic to be normal mm. and lose 20 pounds because yeah. there's a lot of trial and error. There is no one way, one size fits all. It's what works for. And we had to do a lot of, a lot of science. We, you know, I got her, um, I, you know, I said, well, try to see if you can get a glucometer. So she talked to the doctor and he's like, no, nah, you're not diabetic. You don't need that. Mm. And you, and the insurance company won't cover it. Yeah. Wow. So here you have about 9 million people in the United States with prediabetes, 9 million. And you're telling them to lose weight. Okay. Check. That makes sense. Exercise more. That makes sense. But they don't know what their blood sugar is. Mm. They don't understand what that looks like day to day. They don't know what their fasting looks like. But once they cross the threshold and they're diabetic, here's a glucometer monitor. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So we, we just got one from Amazon and we started looking at her fasting. We looked at her postprandial glucoses. She had time. So because of the seasonal life she was in. So yeah. we could do the science. It may look different for somebody else who is a working mom who can't do all the things. And what we were able to find were okay, her fasting needed was high. And we also needed to understand what she was doing the night before. Hmm. How, how late was she up? How late did she eat? And we started just, mo it's, it's the smallest modifications over time, but we build on it. We try to settle in. It must feel right to them. It's not about depriving or, okay, we just can't have this thing anymore. No, we when we strip away everything that we've had, especially if we're tied to culturally, we're less likely to stick to whatever that new regimen is. Yeah. So it's not to strip away your 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 cultural ties; it's to make it make sense. Yeah, for what your goals are. So yeah, and that is so beautiful because in this fifteen minute every three months, six months visit with this doctor, it is not happening. And and I'm hearing you talk about helping providing the education yes helping them to understand well this is the, how many times does someone come home with a paper and like well this is what they said and i don't know any and then you go on google and you don't know yes. you <laughs> 10, 10 15 different answers but them coming to you oh this is what this means and going down to the education the science and all that but i'm also hearing helping them to ingrain a new thought process uh, because like you said, if you need to lose 20 pounds and you're changing your diet, your sleeping, eating habits and all that, you, in order for that to sustain in the longevity of it all, 
you have to have different beliefs. You have to have different thoughts. You have to have a different way of doing things. Whereas yes. that's why people, you follow, oh, follow this diet, you'll lose 20 pounds. Yeah, you will. But when you get to that goal, then what? There was, um, they talked about when um, Oprah talked about that time she was on that liquid diet and she lost those 60 pounds, looked amazing. And she said that when she left, she came on the show and everyone was applauding her and it was such a good thing. But when she left, she was just so lost and scared because, I lost the weight. Now what? I mean, the mindset hasn't changed. The reason I'm doing this, I'm already, I've already gotten the goal. Now what? And so she went back to like how she was before because she didn't really understand her body. And, 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 and like you said, everyone's diet is different. What I can eat, you may not be able to eat and keep the weight off. So I see you right. really giving that personalized, this is me and you on what works for you to achieve your goals and then sustain those. So then like, of course it took 18 months. Like she became a whole new woman. Yep. I yep. love that. Essentially. So, go ahead. Uh, no, what I was just going to add was we, we also are in a culture of we need things done now. Right. Yes. So we want to lose the weight now. We want to look like whatever we see on Instagram, Facebook, wherever we see it now, you know, we we're talking to moms we're moms you've had you know you you want to snap back you know yes uh, I'm not opposed to the vanity don't get me wrong I like you know, we all like to look good but we must put health first we must do it in a responsible way mm. and understand that what you may have been prior to having your children may not be what you look like going forward mm. because of all of the like we don't even give having children the 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 credit <laughs> the space no. you know the the changes that happen in our bodies yes because of of us carrying another child another human is tremendous and it doesn't mean that we have to not be unhealthy but it may not look like what you were prior to and you we have to start being okay in those spaces and um and shifting from I need to lose the weight in three months because I have a wedding versus let me let me just pace myself mm -hmm. because I do want to keep it off not just lose it and so that's where that's where I think you know we have to get to you know just in general as a society and yeah. not to villainize anybody who is overweight. Also, like, you know, the stigmas that go along with it. Uh, you're, you know, it, from the minute you start talking about weight as a clinician, people start seizing up on you. <laughs> I know, I didn't eat right. I had a man. You, you start hearing it. I'm like, but that's not what we're talking about. Because a lot of it is not even our fault. We've been sold on certain foods mm. being healthy. We've been indoctrinated into fast food because our lives are hectic you know so it it it's sometimes not even because you are eating or overeating yeah. it's it's just a, a way of life so we have to figure out how it's in the life that we have where we have opportunity to do a little bit better and that will move your dial and the needle a little closer to the goal it just will take a longer time yeah. And the things they're not talking about in these doctor's appointments when they're saying you need to lose weight, need to eat different is even the science behind how our diet system and the way we eat fast food and all that has just 
it's it's addiction and it's addiction by force, right? Like these yeah. foods that we eat, they become addictive because of yes. the things they do, because of even the ads and things. They pay these these uh, scientists, sociologists so much money they they to do. get us to, oh, well, I think this is healthy and this education is not happening. In the, and I, in the hospitals, I see patients diabetic on 200, 300 carbs on their plate, you know, and they're on a diabetic diet. It's like, it's nuts. So they're not getting the education on the inside when they're in the acute care, when something's happening. When you talk about like the Band-Aid, like that is what's happening. Oh, let me give you this. Get your sugar down. You know, we put them on an insulin drip. They come in, yep. sugars in the seven, eight hundreds. We put them on a blood sugar drip a few days. They go to the floor. They go home. There's been no education of like, how did you get there? And how do we work with you to get you down? I don't yeah. Even when you talk about uh, diabetes educators and things like that, they don't, their appointments are only 15 minutes, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. So what you're providing very much is something that's missing in healthcare, hundred yeah. percent. So how does it look to work with you? How do, if one's interested, how do they reach out to you? Like, how do they do that? And what does it look like? Um, so there is an intake form. Um, you can reach me on my website, hhwomanco.com. And we'll start talking, you know, for first half hour consultation, just so I can get an idea as to what, what your goals are. What is it that you're trying to achieve? Are we going to be aligned? Because it is a commitment. It's mm -hmm. a commitment that they have to make to themselves to see this mm -hmm. through. And um, I'm really transparent with the journey. It's not really what, it, we're not just going to be focused on exercise and food. It, mm -hmm. We're going to start touching other areas of their lives and they have to be willing to to be honest yeah. not to me but to themselves mm -hmm. and so you know we use that first half half an hour to to kind of tease through if if this is you know a, a relationship that we would want to embark upon and then once they agree then I send them a whole slew of things that, that I need to understand I need to understand who you are from from a health perspective, what your current symptoms are and like your family dynamic in terms of your family health. Because I think a part of what we also overlook is the power of women in the family hmm. and how we shape the, the health of the family. Yes. Wow. You know, wow. so if, if we can get mom healthy, if there's a dad, a husband, a partner, in, they will also follow suit without you having to even make a suggestion because yes. you once you're consistent in what you do they will follow suit the kids will follow behind it's not going to happen like this again we look for it like oh my god it's not it's working it takes time mm -hmm. and so you know a big part of my philosophy is if you can get healthy as a the mother and the wife um or the woman of the house then whoever lives with you will also get healthy mm. and then by extension the community can get healthy because it's it, it just it, there's that trickle down effect um so yeah it's a lot of that and then we start working we start meeting twice a month um right now i do like one session science like we have science embedded in it so um like i did a session the other day and you know i kind of tried to unpack the definitions of obesity and she was like oh i didn't know that obesity was considered a disease i didn't know it was considered relapsing. So it's just it's just sprinkling that stuff inside of a session that grounds what it is that we do and how we do it. And mm -hmm. then we do 
you know, lots of journaling is required because um, I need to see, I can't help you unless I see what you're doing. And, you know, and then we, we, we tackle what we see. We address what we can see. Um, and and specific about a six month program, and we work through, work through your, your challenges. Yeah, and I, 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 my hope is to leave you with tools that you feel comfortable employing. So we have tools for when you're home, and then there's some tools that we can use when we're out, mm-hmm. when we dine out. There's some hard. Sometimes we can't use any tools. Like I went to, you know, Sesame Place. <laughs> This weekend pass. I couldn't use any tools. It was just right. it, it was what it was. And we have yeah. to be okay with that too. Like yeah, because that one so time is, yeah. yeah. And that one time is not so what rigid. caused someone to be overweight or have diabetes. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah. But I, I can't tell you when you start your journey of transformation, when you have those weekends, you're like, oh my God, what is this? It because it nothing tastes right to you. But, mm. And that to me is when you know that it's starting to look because that mind connection to your body has now settled in and you're like, mm-mm, this mm-mm. I only want yeah. one fry. That don't look right. <laughs> yes. I love that. And the quality of foods you will eat and those yes. kinds of things. Yeah. Yes. You become more discerning, you know? Yes. And I, I also take into effect. So, you know, some, some, some people might be like, Oh, all organic, you know, it's expensive. Yeah. We, we we have to be honest with where that person is financially also. What can they actually do? Because what you're not trying to do is stress them out, try to heal this thing by stressing them somewhere else. Um, so we figure out ways like frozen food section is a good place for veggies. Like it's cheaper, yeah. you know, buying vegetables seasonally. It yeah. works when you can. If you can find organic things on sale, that's when you pick it up. If not, it's okay. Like we, you, we can work around what your finances allow. Yeah. Doesn't mean you can't be healthy. You can't achieve health, better health. Yeah, I think a lot of us, um, just a perspective of like women, especially moms, like we have this all or nothing mindset. Like if I can't do it all, then I'm not doing anything. And we don't know that's what's happening in our mind, but yeah. that is what's happening when you get overwhelmed and you quit because something has gone wrong or you can't follow things to the T. So I love how you help them on a personalized space. Yeah. One thing I wanted to, when you talked about the power of the woman at home, like that is such a close thing for me as I've discovered that myself in my home. And when you talk about like the key, the, the, the partner will follow, the kids will follow, share with us your journey. It's a two-part question. Like you with your children and how you're building your business with having children, one of which is very small and what that looks like and then how you see that has affected them for the better in, in what they choose to eat, how they choose to show up, what they see you doing and they see as possible. I mean, it's been challenging uh, starting a business. <laughs> starting a business because when I started, when I really started, I had given birth. So I had an infant and then yeah. I had a toddler. And um. I, I would say that it was a little bit easier then because now I feel like the five-year-old is still in that toddler phase-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and the toddler is really a toddler. So now it's like I'm I'm constantly involved with them <laughs> unless yeah. on, on the business side when when I'm home um, or when they're with me. But mm-hmm. I have to say that 
they see mommy eating a particular weight. And my husband also is 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 also health conscious. So they they know daddy exercises, you know, mommy gets up early and she tries to get her 10 minutes in because mm-hmm. that's all I can squeeze in. Right. Um, they see the food that I prepare. Are they eager to eat it sometimes? No. But they're seeing it. So this is how it this is how it starts. The mm-hmm. messaging is there. They, we don't shy away from having conversations about the importance of of whole food versus the sugary snacks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I try to limit that as much as possible inside my home for them. But I mean, they go out, they they go parties, they you know. So I I have to to give in, in that respect. But they know like the five-year-old was in camp and they went to a trip and somebody asked if she wanted a slushy and she was like, no, my mom said, no, that's not healthy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like, she's like, mommy, I know you said we can't have, that's too much sugar. It's, that's, that's how it starts. Yeah. You know, I'm not trying, and some parents might think, well, oh my God, they're, they're not having fun, but they are. We just find other things mm. that doesn't define fun. We've, Again, it's been sold to us that we have to have these things as part of fun or reward system. But there are other ways and and, and it pushes us to be more creative. If we think about our ancestors who didn't have slushies, there is fun other ways. They enjoyed food differently. Food is a a way of communicating. It's a way of connecting. It's it's also our source of living. Mm -hmm. Slushy is not a food. Yeah, you know, so like, there's a lot of pushback that I would receive um, when it comes to how and what I expose my kids to in terms of drink and eat, in terms of highly processed things. But whole foods, you can't you can't lose with that. Just cook. Yeah, <laughs> and if cooking is not your thing, we have ways around it. Like. There, are, we're not stuck just, oh, I don't want to be in the kitchen sleeping. You don't have to. There's mm-hmm. ways around it and you still can give your kids something nutritional and nutritious and it doesn't have to be not fun. Yes. And I find that this is really breaking the generational cycles of what we see. And us, I know me, I've experienced of not knowing how to have fun without the bad foods because it was so attached to the fun. And so yeah. by what you're doing and all of us trying to do this and be more health conscious on what they're eating, we're helping to break that thought that, oh, well, I'm not having a good time if I don't have ice cream. You know, if I don't have, you know, so I really love that. And one example, I know you have your five-year-old, but for those listening, my son is almost 18 and he was going, he's go, he was going over a friend's house quite often. I'm like, you're always going over there. What do you want? What's he was like, oh, mommy, they have so much stuff. They have all the Oreos. She buys like 10 things of Oreos and this and this. He's like, we can eat them all. And I'm like, oh. And so I'm like, do you think that, that, um, do you not like that? I don't buy that stuff or, you know, what do you think about that? And he was like, well, yes, but however, you still buy it sometimes. And I'm, and you're actually, he, these were his words, a teenager, you're actually showing me how to eat in moderation that I don't need all of that. Yes. I would like the house to have all this junk, but the fact that you don't do that is teach me that we don't need it and all that. And also you do bring it in sometimes. So it's not like we never get it. So for those, you know, it pays off 
Like what you're mm -hmm. talking about pays mm -hmm. off. And like you said, I don't control what he's eating when he go over other people's houses, but I just try to model the behavior in mine. And that is where, when you talk about the woman, like really changing the, traje the trajectory and like leading by example, that's what shows up for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's awesome. He has, you have given him tools to take into his adulthood mm -hmm. about what moderation looks like, what yeah. excess and overindulgence is. And, you know, it's, we're talking about food, but it can be anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so food is that example that can trans transcend across, you know, your sexual behavior, your, you know, yeah. all of these different things. It's not just, it doesn't just stop there because I feel like what we're doing using food is setting up the boundaries and, and giving you permission. And I'm telling you, it's okay to just eat when like understand what's happening with you understand your cues are you hungry like check in with yourself had you had you had enough right you had enough like you know you had enough so let's just stop you yeah. know like things like that so kudos to your son <laughs> yeah well thank you thank you for what you're doing in community i 100 percent agree when you change the woman you change the family you change the dynamics we change future generations so i will definitely link all of your uh your website your social medias you guys i'll put that all in the show notes so you can check her out please follow her thank you for what you're doing in the community and yeah. thank you for being here today thank you for having me it was a pleasure thank you i'll talk to you soon that wraps up this week. I hope you found value. Please share with a mom friend, subscribe and leave a review. This helps this podcast to get into the minds of those who need it most. I would love to hear what you think about the episode. Find me on Instagram and Facebook at Moms Who Achieve. Looking forward to chatting with you next week. Take care.